you guys wouldn't mind opening up to the book of Galatians chapter 5. Hopefully you guys all have a Bible. If you don't have one, we do have them in the back. Uh, chapter uh, 5 verse 22 is what we're going to be looking at in particular. Uh, we're actually going to be looking at a little bit of a different series, kind of within a series today. We're going to be focusing on what's typically called uh, the fruit of the Spirit is what we're going to be identifying today. It should be a great time. Um, really focusing on nine different characteristic traits in which God births within his people, uh, really himself, his characteristic traits of himself into the lives of his people. And I really uh, feel hopefully uh, we'll take some time investigating this and understanding this, kind of unpackaging it. Uh, we've been going through the book of Galatians now for several months, uh, and this whole thing will kind of take us about nine weeks because there's about nine different characteristic traits. And again, all of this is sort of uh, embedded into the larger uh, passage of the book of Galatians itself. Um, with that being said, I'm going to be teaching obviously today on the fruit of love. That's the first one. Next week, we'll take a look at joy, and consequently, we will keep going down the line of the various fruit of the Spirit that Paul's going to identify and talk about. Uh, in fact, next week, uh, you guys are going to get the privilege to be able to hear from uh, Pastor James, who shared with you guys some of the announcements. Uh, great guy. He's been with us pretty much since the very beginning. He'll be teaching next week, uh, because this week is actually my 20th year wedding anniversary, and I'll be on the beaches in Cabo. So, Yeah. And um, I'll be getting a suntan while you guys are in here. Should be a good time. I'm very excited. Like I said, 20 years with my great wife. We'll be celebrating on March 16th. So, okay, what we're going to do this morning is we're going to be taking a look at this. What I want to do as we kind of begin is I want to start kind of lead into all of this with a quote from the uh, 17th century philosopher, a guy by the name of Soren Kierkegaard. He says this, He who cannot reveal himself cannot love and he who cannot love is the most unhappy man of all. I think Kierkegaard, in a lot of ways, is absolutely spot on. This is exactly what I think Paul the Apostle is trying to identify, is that he can't be real with himself. He can't be able to bring himself to the light. And that's how we are. The Bible says that we walk in darkness. And what that basically means is that we walk in our own shadows. We walk within our own shame. Because we sin, because we feel shame, because we feel guilt, we run from God primarily. We run from other people secondarily. And our relationships with God vertically suffers. Our relationships with people horizontally suffer. And usually at the end of the day, it's because we choose to remain in the darkness. We don't come out of the light. Uh, we do our sin in darkness. We have our moments of uh, pain in darkness. We have our deeds of evil in darkness, our pain is in the dark. Our secret sins are just that. They're secret. They're done in the dark. And what Jesus does by setting us free, the gospel does by saving us, not only does it save us from our sins that we do, but it also saves us from God's future judgment that will one day come. But the point of the matter is this, is that what Kierkegaard is saying is that Without coming clean with who we are, we're not free to know love. That's what the gospel does. It actually frees us from our prisons of darkness so that we can be honest with our sin, communicate what it truly is, we can call it what it is, rather than just simply giving some sort of a nice politically correct label and placing it upon it, but calling sin for what it is, and then calling uh, or coming clean, coming to God, who then offers forgiveness and cleanses us and washes us. And that's the way it works in horizontal relationships. It's also the same way it works in vertical relationships with God. If you're in a relationship with somebody and you don't come clean with your sin or your offense against them, there's no reconciliation. You don't have relationship. The relationship shrivels up and dies. In other words, you don't have, you can't have love. Love is the byproduct of transparency. Love is the byproduct of basically putting everything on the table and being able to love even in the midst of all that. And really that's what Kierkegaard is saying is that the gospel frees us so that we can be honest with ourselves, we can communicate what's really what, what there is within our heart, and then we can know the love of God. And that's what the gospel does. It provides the pathway or the means by which we're now able or capable of being able to do that. We said last week that basically the gospel changes us. 
And the way that the gospel primarily changes us is that it actually puts us in a place where now we, we know the love of God, and by knowing the love of God, we can actually respond in loving ways to God vertically and to others on a horizontal level. Prior to knowing the love of God, like I said, we stay in our shadows. We stay in darkness. The reason why we stay in darkness is because we're afraid of the light. We're afraid of being exposed. We're afraid of being found out. It's one of the reasons why some of us live duplicitous lifestyles. We have two lives. We're two-faced. We're one person somewhere else. We're another person in an entirely different place. We act out one way in another area. We act out another way in another area. We put on our church face here. We put on our game face there. We put on our work face there. And the reality is, is that it's very hard. It takes an awful lot of energy, an awful lot of energy to keep covering your tracks. And it's difficult, but the gospel frees us from that so that now we can call sin what it is and come running back to God. That actually forms the basis now whereby we can actually truly experience lasting change. One of the things that we said several weeks ago, I'll reiterate it, is this. There's different ways to change, but there's only one true way that produces lasting change. Give you an example. If I were to have a Nerf football in my hand, I actually wanted to try to find one yesterday. It was at the dollar store. I couldn't find one big enough because I'm cheap. I don't want to go spend actual money for a Nerf football, so I was looking for something at the dollar store, and I couldn't find something big enough. But the point of the matter is if I were to take a Nerf football and then take a wiffle ball, and if I were to crush them, I can actually take the Nerf football and crush it into the shape of a ball. Even though it's a football oblong, I can crush it in the shape of a ball. And I can take a wiffle ball, and because it's hollow, I can crush the wiffle ball. The moment I take my hands off of both, the Nerf football will go right back to being a Nerf football. The wiffle ball will stay crushed because what's happened is the wiffle ball has actually fundamentally been changed. It's totally different. It's, it's a crushed ball now. The Nerf ball was just simply changed through restraint. This is the way some of you have been changed. Some of you have been changed through restraint. I'll give you an example. The restraint of family. For example, let's say you grew up in a family that was very religiously staunch. There's a lot of restrictions, a lot of things you weren't allowed to do, a lot of people you were not allowed to hang out with, a lot of things that were basically restrained or taken away from you. In some ways, it's very good for parents to exercise certain elements of restraint, but the bottom line is this, is that once the restraints are taken off, the children bounce right back to what they originally were. You didn't really change them, you just sort of formed them, forged them, uh, forced them, I should say, into this mold by pure restraint. You never really fundamentally changed their heart. You didn't change them. They bounced right back into the reality of who they were. That's what religion does. Religion basically imposes upon us uh, methods for change. Maybe some of you have been in religious groups before where there are certain uh, various uh, elements within that particular religious group that they're all about. In other words, to be in that particular religious group, you've got to fall in line, fall in sync with particular uh, elements that that group are defined by or are various distinctives of that particular group. And if you didn't fall in line to those things, you'd be shamed, you would be guilted, people would manipulate you, someone would maybe pull you aside, rebuke you, you felt really bad if you weren't living up to the particular standards of that group, and maybe at some point you would fall in line with those things, but you're really not doing it because you're changed. You're doing it because you're avoiding uh, shame. You're doing it because you're avoiding guilt. You're not truly changed in your heart. Does that make sense? So the gospel is going to say that there is a way to be changed that's actually not real. It's inauthentic. It's not genuine. It's nothing more than just simple restraint. Somebody or something is pressurizing you into this particular mold. The moment that somebody or something are gone or removed, you bounce right back into the element of who you are. But what the gospel is going to say is that it has the ability to change the fundamental basics of who we are. C.S. Lewis would describe it like this. He would say, it's not just about training a horse to do new tricks. You can do that. 
But you haven't changed the horse. He says the gospel actually changes the horse into a pegasus. It gives it wings. It's a whole new creature. It does something entirely different. There's elements that are very horse-like, but it's entirely different creature. That's what the gospel does. Is it changes us internally. Whereby now, this transformation that we're free to experience actually does so on the basis of bringing us into right relationship with God. Where our hearts are moved by God. That's what Paul's going to say. That's where Paul's going to go. I want to jump into this. I want to read two sort of passages of scripture that we'll look at. Beginning at Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 and 23. Then we're going to jump real quick to uh, the book of a very familiar passage, most of you, is uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We'll read this little section here, and then I'm going to pray, then we're going to get to work. The reason why we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 13 is because it has to do with this uh, larger topic of love, which Paul is going to say is uh, the fruit of the Spirit. So Galatians chapter 5, 22 says this, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. Kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And then he's going to go on to try to understand what love is. So turn real quick to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And again, Paul's the author here, and here's what he says about love. He says, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but I don't have love, I'm a noisy gong or a clinging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and I understand all mysteries... And all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. And if I give away all that I have to, uh, and deliver myself up, my body to be burned, if I do not have love, I gain nothing. Verse 4, it says, but love is patient, love is kind. Love does not envy or does not boast. It's not arrogant or rude, does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful, does not rejoice in wrongdoing but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. It's usually at that particular passage, everybody looks up to try to find a bride. Uh, usually whenever that verse is read at weddings, it's always out of context, but we won't make a big deal out of that. Uh, it's a great verse that has to do with love, and so in that sense, it's not bad. So let's pray. Let's jump in. God, thank you so much for your word, and we ask you right now that you would just help our hearts understand what love is. God, we just confess that on one level, um, love is an easy thing to talk about. There's plenty of verses that point to it. But God, and the reality is, is that living it, understanding it, experiencing it, is a whole other thing. Because it requires change, and it requires trust, faith, confidence. And so, God, we ask you right now that you'd help us, help us to even lay aside our understanding, our even our expectations of what we oftentimes have trained ourselves or have been trained in thinking that love is, and help us just to be refreshed in what your word has uh, outlined for us, to understand what love truly is. So we ask for your help right now, God, because at the end of the day, we, we want to be changed. We want to be truly transformed people, not people that are just conformed to a mold, not people that just simply conform to some sort of a legalistic standard that's imposed upon us. God, we want to be changed from the inside out. We want to be new people. So we ask for your help right now. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I'm going to jump right in. And there's three things, uh, basically four things that we're going to be taking a look at. I want to start off by trying to identify, because there's a lot of misconceptions. When we talk about love, um, there's a lot of things that love is not. So I feel like I need to first and foremost kind of go through some of the elements of what love is not. And uh, the reason why I'm going to do this, uh, twofold. One, because there's a lot of elements in which love is not. Two, uh, because Paul actually does this. And so I'm just trying to regurgitate what love uh, is in terms of definition as to what Paul has outlined. Uh, I'm not trying to make this up. I'm not trying to outline this myself. I'm just trying the best I can to stick with what uh, God has tried to reveal for us in his word. So the first thing I want to really, uh, really try to understand is the fact that love is not busyness and giftedness. And I actually take this from the first few verses of uh, 1 Corinthians. It's not busyness and it's not giftedness. Here's what Paul means by this. Here's what he says in uh, verse 1. Again, he says, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but don't have love. Uh, so what Paul is talking about here is some sort of a supernatural gifting to be able to speak in tongues of men 
I think this is not so much supernatural gifting, but it's a very natural gifting, meaning you're bilingual, you're trilingual, you're very smart. You've understood a lot of different languages, linguistics. You're very intelligent. You've got certain natural giftings. But then he moves on to more supernatural giftings because then he talks about or speak with the tongues of angels. And the Bible is actually going to tell us that there are supernatural languages and then there are also natural languages. Natural languages are like Spanish, French, redneck, all these things that we speak that are just natural, regular languages, all right? The reality is that there are supernatural languages that come from heaven. And we're told, basically speaking with the tongues of angels, in this particular setting, uh, Paul is saying, you can speak with regular native languages that are, that are here, uh, part of this world in which you live in, or speak of tongues that are not part of this world, and you can do so in a way that really do not put on display love, that don't demonstrate love. So it's a supernatural and a natural gifting. Second thing he points out, he says, um, I would be actually a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Verse 2, he says, And if I have prophetic powers and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge and have all faith. So he talks about prophetic powers. He talks about understanding mysteries. He, understand, he talks about being, the ability to be able to understand all, uh, have certain knowledge and wisdom of all sorts of things around you. I think what Paul's talking about is that you can have all sorts of talents all sorts of abilities. You can be busy about doing these things throughout your life and do so in a way that does not have anything to do with love. I think this is really important. He says you can even have faith so as to remove mountains. This isn't just salvation faith or salvific faith as we describe it, but this is faith that's beyond salvation faith. This is like great faith. This is faith like Joshua you know, to march around the walls of Jericho seven times and to watch those things fall. This is like the faith of Moses who raised the staff and saw uh, the Red Sea part. This is like, this is like visionary faith. Uh, you could be somebody that has visionary faith um, to do great things and even still do so in a way that has nothing to do uh, correspondingly whatsoever with love. And then he goes on to say, he says, I can do these things, but if I don't have love, I'm nothing. So I think really at the end of the day, what Paul's trying to identify is that you can have spiritual gifts, leadership gifts, teaching gifts, knowledge gifts, supernatural gifts, healing gifts, prophetic gifts, insight gifts. You can be an entrepreneur, you can have artistic gifts, and you can actually kind of lure yourself into believing that because you have these things, and because these things are elementary gifts from God, you might even be able to be someone that says, look, I got this gift from God, all right? Even you can receive an award and be like, God bless y'all, God gave this for, to me. You can even make acknowledgement of the fact that God gave you these things. But there's the reality that just because you have those things or just because you find yourself in this place of being busy about doing those things, you can do it without having any love. The reality is that our church is filled with incredibly talented people. Corinth was filled with incredibly talented people. It was a port city. It was a city along the seacoast, and they had all sorts of people coming in that were artistic, people that were skilled at business. In a lot of ways, I, I look at our church. Some of you guys are so ridiculously smart. I met some of you. You're like, like biologists. Like, I can't even say that. Or you're like, you're, you're in calculus, and you study numbers. I'm like, I don't get that. I don't understand. Some of you are incredibly talented as designers, web designers. Some of you are incredibly talented with music. I know people in this church that are unbelievably talented as entrepreneurs. You have visionary faith, just like Paul says. You can see things that don't exist. In your mind, there they are. But in your mind, they work themselves out through your life into the reality, and they, you become somebody that leads a very growing, fast-growing, very blessed type of a business. God has just given you certain giftings and certain abilities and certain talents and certain artistic abilities. But don't think just because you have those that somehow you can now say God's with you. That's what Paul's saying. Just because you have these things are not in any way an indicator that God's with you. What Paul's going to say is the one mark, the one true mark, can identify that God is with you is that you love. 
So what Paul's going to say is that it's possible to have visionary faith. It's possible to have dreams. It's possible to have visions. It's possible to be an entrepreneur. It's possible to be an incredible designer, an unbelievable musician that receives songs from God, that's able to preach unbelievable sermons and gather large, enormous gatherings or groups of people and do all of these things without any love. This is exactly what Matthew chapter 7 was all about. When Jesus said, there's going to come a day when many will come to me and they'll say, Lord, Lord, didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we do signs and miracles and wonders in your name? Jesus is going to say, depart from me. I didn't know you. So apparently there are those that can actually have ministries in which they are exclusively casting out demons. And there's no relationship with the Father. That ought to shock us. That's a frightening reality. So what's the one apologetic we got to look for? What's the one mark that we have to really truly hone in on? That we have to understand that if it's absent, if it's not there, then we really have to step back and wonder where we're at. And Paul's going to say it's love. Because the reality is it's possible to be very busy and to be very talented and have all sorts of giftedness and not have any love. But you know the reality is? The inverse is true. That if you love, sometimes the people that are most loving can sometimes find themselves very busy because they love serving people. They love using their gifts in a way that glorify God. So they're very active. They're doing lots of stuff, nonstop. There's nothing wrong with busyness, and there's nothing wrong with talents. But Paul is trying to say is don't you dare look at your talents or your busyness as some sort of leverage point that identifies you as being right with God. Don't do that, because that's what Paul's saying is dangerous ground. The second thing he's going to tell us is that love is, first of all, not busyness. It's not giftedness. The second thing he's going to tell us that love is not morality and commitment. This is very important because he's going to identify this in verse 3. He says, but if I give away all that I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but I don't have love, I gain nothing. What Paul's going to do now, he's not going to talk about talents. He actually kind of shifts gears here a little bit. So rather than talking about talents like visionary abilities or speaking abilities or prophetic abilities, he's going to be talking now about virtues. And this is something the Corinthians would have been very familiar with because they were very deeply influenced by Greek thought uh, from Aristotle, and Aristotle was very well known for his uh, virtues. And so this is sort of a virtue list. It's kind of a short virtue list. But here's what Paul's going to say. You can have... uh, you can live a life of morality and have a life of deep commitment. The first one he talks about is, is if I give away all that I have to the poor. He was talking about? He's talking about voluntary poverty. He's not just saying, look, if I give 10% away that I have to the church. He's saying, look, you're so hardcore, you should give everything away. You're totally into social justice. You're totally into helping out the poor. You're so deeply committed to that, so enthralled with that particular way of life that you'd be willing to give everything away just so that you can help those people that are hurting the most. We would call that sort of a liberal virtue, kind of a liberal virtue. All right? Then Paul's going to go on and say, the second thing, or I can give my body to be burned. He's talking about martyrdom. You could actually be so deeply committed to a fundamental belief of the Bible and of the church and of the scriptures and of Jesus and of orthodoxy so much so that you'd be willing to die for your faith. We call this a conservative virtue, right? So on one hand, you can say liberals, conservatives, Democrats, Republicans, it's possible for you to be on polar opposites and have strong convictions on either side and have nothing to do whatsoever with love. Because he's going to talk about it would be like a a, a banging gong, a, a loud symbol. So the question could be asking, well, what's a big deal with symbols? Paul hates symbols? Well, the symbols actually, uh, taken in the context of, uh, you know, 1 Corinthians, and especially in the particular region of, of Corinth, symbols were actually used as a means when people would walk down the road in a procession worshiping their false pagan gods. They would actually bang these big old loud symbols together, and it was sort of a means they would do that as a means of trying to get the attention of the gods. The louder they would bang them, the more 
uh, attention that they were thinking they were trying to get their gods to understand and notice, to affirm them in what they were doing. And so Paul's saying, look, it's possible. It's possible for you to do these things in a way in which you're trying to get God's attention. But you're totally removed from love. So the reality is, is you can be somebody that is very moral, very ethical. You have very high standards. You're the type of person that has certain people in your mind that you would never hang out with. You know the problem is, though? You can be that type of person that's just like, I'm very moral, I do very good things, and you despise, condescend everybody. That's not like you. You're arrogant. You're wicked. There's no love. Or you can be somebody that's just so quick to give yourself to every type of cause in any other means trying to help and serve the poor. And there's actually a way to serve the poor that's very self-centered. You're doing it in a way of, you know, I, you, you can be somebody that actually serves the poor, serves people in a way that you look at your own conscience and you feel very guilty in your own conscience and you try to help other people as a means of actually self-atoning for your own sin. You mean, what I mean by that is that you feel the weight of your own sin on your shoulders, and so you, being driven by the weight of sin on your own shoulders, you think, you know what, maybe if I give money away to somebody, if I help somebody out, if I just give all that I have away to engage somebody uh, less fortunate than I am, maybe I can appease my conscience. Paul would say, that's selfish. You're not doing it out of love. You're not doing it out because you just love somebody. You're doing it because you want a means of self-atonement. Or you can be somebody that's like, you're doing because you want God to see you, to affirm you. Again, Paul's saying, you're not doing it for the sake of God. Just because God's good and God's an end in and of himself. You're doing it because you think that by doing this, you'll get God's favor. You'll get on God's good side, and now God will owe you something. You're doing it as sort of this bartering chip, this bargaining chip with God. The more you serve, the more you give away, the more you help, the more you, you just engage with people less fortunate than you, that you somehow think now, God owes me something. And Paul's going to say, that's not love. It's very selfish, very self-centered. So Paul's going to say, it's very possible to be somebody that has great morality and is deeply committed that has absolutely detachment from love. But ironically, those who love will become moral. Those who love will feel commitment. The way you change matters. The way you change matters. If all you're trying to do is change by some sort of external force, you're not really changing. Remember the Nerf ball. You're just simply constricting yourself with some sort of external force. The moment that's gone, you bounce right back to who you really were before. What you really need is change in your heart. The third thing that I want to talk about in terms of what love is not, uh, even though Paul doesn't address it here, I'm going to address it because I think it's an important one. It's definitely one that our culture deals with, and it's definitely one that Paul actually addresses in other places, just not simply here. But before we do, one of the telltale signs that simply we are depending upon our spiritual talents or depending upon a moralistic lifestyle and not really understanding the fact of love, even one of the best ways to really identify that in our lives to see if that's us, if we're the type of person that is trying to earn God's favor by being moral, earn God's favor by working really hard, earn God's favor by somehow being, uh, you know, using our liberal, liberal values, earn God's favor by somehow, you know, promoting our conservative values, but you're not really doing so in love, the telltale sign, Paul's going to say, is the abrasiveness about your life, or is, is the irascibility of the way that you act, the irritability of your heart. You're not nice. You're not kind. You're really rude. You gossip. You slander. You backbite. You talk about people. You're very critical, very cynical. And Paul's going to say, Look, don't you dare, just because you may have these certain values or sets of values or virtues or because you have certain talents or things that you can do in life that are maybe better than your next door neighbor, if you have all of these, if you have all of these things and if you are living a life in dependence upon those things and not in love, Paul's whole point is to say, don't you dare say that God's with you because he's not. He's not. 
Because some of the questions might be like, well, then how is it possible that, you know, some guy can, you know, preach a sermon or have enormous crowds of people coming to church and yet live in real bad sin? And yet it seems like God still blessed that ministry. Here's the irony with God. God doesn't need clean people to do good things. Okay? That, that's the irony there. That's the irony there. All right, one of the most encouraging passages of Scripture I find personally is the fact that God can actually use a donkey. All right? I mean, God's just like, look, I need a spokesman who's going to speak up, who's going to talk for me. No one's raising their hand, and all he finds is a donkey. All right? A donkey. And he speaks up. He speaks to Balaam. He preaches a message. All right? And I love this because there's no moral value to the donkey, but God is able to actually use him as a vehicle to speak his message that needs to get out. So the, at the end of the day, just because God may use you, just because there may be something about you that is gifted or good or moral or moralistic, don't look at that as a means that somehow everything's okay between you and God, that you are truly changed. That's the point. Just because you have these things doesn't mean you're truly changed. This is the problem with religion straight up. This is the danger with religion straight up. Religion can oftentimes operate as an imposter to true love and true change. Religious people love to look at what they do. Well, look what I'm doing for God. I'm leading worship. I must be right with God. I'm preaching Bible studies. I must be right with God. I just led five people to Jesus last week. I must be right with God. Don't look at those things as just somehow being some means. You have to look at another thing that has to do with the heart, the internal essence of who you are. Do you love? Are you motivated by love? Are you moved by love? If not, everything else around us is just being jury-rigged and controlled. We're being manipulated by a system. We're being manipulated even by our own intentions, but we're not truly changed. The true sign of a changed heart is you love. That's what Paul's going to say. So the third thing that love is not is love is not sentimentality and sexuality. This is important because I think oftentimes in our day and age, we tend to look at love as being some sort of an emotional feeling that we have. And secondly, some, we look at love oftentimes and describe it as being sexually active. Let's first of all take a look at sentimentality. Quote C.S. Lewis on this, and here's what C.S. Lewis says. Love is not affectionate feeling, but a steady wish for the loved person's ultimate good as far as it can be obtained. So what C.S. Lewis is basically trying to identify is that true love is really, it, it's not a feeling. It's not that you feel something really good inside, something warm inside, and then you respond. All right, moms know this. Moms know this, all right? Here's to you moms, all right? The reality is that moms understand this because moms never, never feel particularly excited about changing a nasty blowout diaper, ever. Moms never feel particularly excited about, you know, doing things, waking up at three in the morning or dads having to, you know, change diapers at one in the morning. Nobody loves that. Nobody feels excited about doing that. But there's a love there. And so love is actually devoid of that feeling in that particular setting. You're actually driven by another motivation that you love your kid. That kid's captured your heart. The child's captured your heart. You're in love with that child. You'll do anything for that child because you love the child. Even change a diaper, even though it's horrible, even though you don't feel good, even though you don't feel especially good about doing that at that moment in that time. It's not sentimentality. The second thing is that love is not sexuality. And the reason why I say this is because, again, we live in a day which tries to confuse this. We live in a day where oftentimes we have this thought in our mind that says just because he said or she said, I love you, they must mean that they really love me because they had sex with me or we slept with each other. Therefore, there's some sort of love relationship going on. You need to understand that the Bible is going to basically say um, sex outside of marriage without, outside of a covenant relationship is not true love. Here's a question that I want to ask. If you're having sex outside of the covenant marriage relationship, are you sinning against your future spouse or your current spouse? And the answer is yes. 
Because here's what Paul's going to say, is that marriage is actually this covenant relationship whereby a male and a female come together. They vow to love one another till death do them part before each other and before God. They give themselves to each other. Part of that gift process, that covenant process, is the man will then give his body to his wife, and his wife will then give her body to him. It's a gift to be unwrapped and enjoyed. But if you take your body and you give it to somebody else, what you're actually doing is stealing away what rightfully belongs to your future spouse. Or if you're married, what rightfully belongs to your spouse currently. And it's not just simply stealing something, but it's also defilement. Because when you sleep with someone or have sexual relationships with somebody outside of marriage... Not only are you taking something from them that does not belong to you, stealing, but you're also defiling them. This is oftentimes why people after intercourse, they will go wash themselves, go bathe themselves, because typically they feel filthy inside their heart. What they do externally to their body is something they wish could be done to their heart, but they can't. So they just settle for the exterior. But internally, inside, they feel defiled. What you need to understand is that love is not just, it's not sexuality. So you can look at this and think, I'm in a sexual relationship. Or I have particular feelings for somebody. It does not necessarily make it in terms of the reality of what the Bible says is love. I want to talk to you girls very briefly and very quickly. Like a dad. I'm 40 years old. I have the rights to do that now. All right? That's what happens when you turn 40. Listen. If you are in a relationship, particularly single girls, if you are in a relationship and the boy says to you, but I love you, but I love you, and then proceeds to try to manipulate you to get you to sleep with him, he's literally lying to you, throwing out a line to somehow manipulate you, to guilt you into taking something from you that does not belong to him. I promise you, if you do that, if you bite that hook you will find yourself feeling extremely defiled. There are many sins that we can forgive and walk away from and feel fine. There are other sins that you cannot just simply wash away. They stay there. The Bible's word for that is we become defiled. We feel stained. We feel filthy inside. I've done enough counseling between my wife and I over the years with literally hundreds of students and married people, that this has been their lot in life. And the one thing that everybody agrees on, that they wish they can do over again, would be to undo their sexual activity before they got married. Because it defiles you. I'm simply telling you this, it is not love. Someone who comes in your house and steals something from you through manipulation is not being loving to you. That's not love. So love, first and foremost, as we look at it here, is not uh, busyness or giftedness. It's not morality and commitment. It's not sentimentality and sexuality. Uh, Love, ultimately, is going to be identified by Paul uh, actually as a person and a power. This is amazing. Here's what Paul is going to basically say. Uh, Let's read the rest of the verse in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4. He says this, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist in its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but it rejoices in truth. But love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. The reality of what basically Paul is trying to say is that Paul doesn't come right out and say, look, guys, I want you to be loving. I want you to be gentle. He doesn't say that, which is kind of an irony. I mean, Paul could try to lead these people in this path, because really, if you look at this list, this list in Corinth is, the, is, the, is almost the exhaustive list of everything the Corinthian believers were not. They weren't loving. They were very unloving to each other. They weren't kind. They weren't patient with each other. They were backbiting, bickering, bringing about division and divisiveness. Sometimes we have this idealistic perspective of the 
first church, first century church. We're like, oh my gosh, if we can go back to the first century church, it'd be awesome. It would suck, because it's just like today. It's just as bad as today. It's just like now. It's not any better. They were dividing, being argumentative, splitting, just like we do today. So what's the antidote? What changes it? What Paul's going to say is what actually changes it is love. Love changes it. He's not going to say, guys, be loving. Let me put it this way. If, if I were to just literally stop for a second and just spend the next minute and a half yelling at you saying, guys, be loving. Just do it. Stop being mean and just love each other. How many of you honestly would actually walk out of here and be like, you know what? I'm just going to, that just motivated me to love people. I just want to hug somebody. I just want to give somebody some money, all right? Is there anybody here who needs 20 bucks? I just want to bless you. That doesn't do that to us. We're not wired to work that way. So to somehow throw a law out to you, say, be loving, actually doesn't work. Paul doesn't do that. He doesn't say, be loving, be patient, be kind. That's not what he does. What Paul actually does in the original Greek is he actually takes the word love, personifies it. So here's the problem. If, if Paul were to say, be loving, be kind, be good, you know what we would do? Because we're humans, we love lists. We would take these lists and be like, okay, I'm going to journal this, and I'm just every day, be loving. I'm going to write a verse or write some, something and put it on the dashboard of my car, just a reminder, put it in my mirror in my house, because that's where I spend a lot of time looking at myself, and I'm just going to remind myself, be loving, be patient, be kind, and the reality is, is we would find ourselves trying very hard to live according to these things. And one of two things would happen to you. One would be you would actually fall under this weight of realizing you're not loving. And feel really bad. Feel like a failure. The other extreme, would you, you would begin to look at yourself and be like, this is awesome. I'm so stinking loving. It's amazing. Like I, I am, I'm really just loving everybody now. My enemies, I love them. My mother-in-law, I love her. All right, I'm just loving everybody now. This is amazing. And you become arrogant and prideful because now you're going to look at people that aren't being loving with despite. Paul doesn't say be loving, be kind, be generous, be good. Paul actually personifies it. Because what Paul realizes is that love is not something primarily that we pick up and do. Love primarily is something that picks us up and changes us. Love is a person. What Paul does in the original Greek is he writes it in such a way to basically say, this is what the gospel is. It's what God has done for you. So he chooses to use this word love to identify it as a person. Not just any person. Because let me tell you something. If Paul just has any person in mind, just say a random person and say, you know what? Gandhi is loving. He's such a loving guy. Just be like Gandhi. All of us would then try to put our hopes in something, somebody, some arbitrary individual person and be like them. And then, like I said, we will either become full of just shame because we're not that good or we will find ourselves full of arrogance and pride because we think we're acting just like them. Paul's not doing this, but he does have one particular person in mind, and obviously the person is Jesus. And in Paul's mind, when he writes something like, love suffers long, I can't help but think that Paul is also thinking of Jesus on the cross, bearing our shame, our sin upon himself, suffering long for us. When Paul talks about love being something that is just kind, it's kindness, I can't help but think that Paul is writing this, thinking about Jesus on the cross saying, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. They're ignorant. They don't know what they're doing. They don't understand. They're living according to some sort of power that's sinful, that's dark, that's evil, that's misleading, misguiding them, and offering them lies that can never satisfy them. This whole point, I think Paul is trying to personify love as Jesus. Listen to how the text reads. If you were to actually take the word love out and put the word Jesus in there, it actually reads amazing. Here's what it says. 
Jesus is patient, and Jesus is kind. Jesus does not envy. He's not boastful. Jesus is not arrogant. He's not rude. He doesn't insist on his own way. Jesus is not irritable. He's not resentful. Jesus does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but he rejoices in the truth. Jesus bears all things, believes all things. Jesus hopes all things, endures all things. Jesus never fails. The love of God, Paul's going to say elsewhere, is actually identified the most profound way at the cross, where he's going to say God demonstrated his love for you. And that while you were yet in sin, yet in a treasonous relationship against God, yet rebellious against God, while you were in the deepest, darkest path of your sin, the darkest shadow overcoming you, under the deepest weight of sin controlling you, it's when Jesus died for you. Jesus is going to put it this way in the verse that most of us know. For God so loved the world that he gave his son so that all who should believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. His whole point is that the love of God is what changes us. It's God's love that changes us. The beauty of the cross is that when we talk about God's love, is God's love is not just mere sentimentality. It's not just feeling. It's not just how God feels about you. It's bigger than that. It's bigger than that. It's the fact that God is equally committed in love to his own ways of lovingness, but he's also deeply committed to his own substantial uh, ways of judgment. And so at the cross, what you see is God's holiness literally coming together with God's love. God's holiness meaning that the very law, the law that all of us were under, the law that condemned all of us because, quite frankly, we're not loving. Quite frankly, we do things to manipulate the system, to manipulate God, to get God to like us, to get God to love us, to get God to uh, accept us. And these are all ways by which we jury-rig our lives to somehow control. Rather than submitting to God, we make our own gods in our own image, gods that we like, gods that we think are palatable to us, gods that we think will actually serve our own fancy. But the whole point of the matter is all of these are idolatrous ways in which God in his holiness must judge, but God in his love provides a solution in his son, Jesus See, some of you guys really struggle with how do I know that I'm loved? Paul's answer to you would be the cross. The cross. That's God's love put on display. You say, I just don't get it. How can I receive that and know that? Because the cross is God's ultimate, most profound way of saying, you want to know how far I would go? to redeem and save you. I would crush my son as if he were a sinner just like you so that now I can treat you as pure like my son. That's how far I would go. It's God's love that changes us. The way that we're changed is not by looking at this ambiguous, amorphic, out their view of love, sentimentality, whatever we want to look at it as and say, I've got to be that. That's not what changes us. That's another law. That's making law a love. What changes us is looking at the gospel, hearing what the gospel has done for us, what God has done for us through the gospel. That changes us on a vertical level, but then it changes us on a horizontal level. Because if God loved us that way, and we were sinners, and we were treasonous, and we were unlovely, then the way that we treat unlovely people that are treasonous and despiteful to us would reflect something of the way that God treated us. That's where forgiveness comes in. That's where loving our enemies comes in. It begins by understanding the cross. I'm going to have Chris coming up right now, and what I want to do right now is... No fanfare, I'm just going to ask you, if, if you're here today 
any of you at all right now, and you struggle with this concept of, of knowing the love of God, um, whether you're a Christian and you struggle with that, if you're not a Christian and you want to know the love of God in a way that brings you into God's family, changes you from the inside out, I just want you to stand up right where you're at. That's all I want to do. Just have you stand up. Just stand up right where you're at. It takes guts to stand up. That's hard. We've got eyes looking at us. We've got the weight of people's opinion on us. That's hard. Um, and not that there's anything, honestly, like unique or special about standing up. There's just not, there's not some sort of magical deal. It's not a silver bullet to spirituality. It's, that, it's not. All, all it is, is just like what Kierkegaard said. It's, it's, it's you coming clean. It's you just simply saying, that, that's me. I got shadows I'm, not, I'm ashamed of. I got areas of darkness in my life I'm not proud of. I want to come clean from those things. That's all this is. Anybody else? Just stand up right where you're at. take a um, minute or two and, and those of you that are standing up um, I want you guys to be prayed for um, I'm going to give you one last shot anybody else just you feel like you need prayer just stand up right where you are cool um, I, I want people around who see you standing uh, around those that are standing just go lay hands on them right now and uh, maybe one or two people out of that group just, just pray for these people Okay, and uh, we'll just have a few moments of silence as you guys pray, and then um, Chris will lead us into some worship, and then uh, we'll partake of communion. We'll respond by singing. We'll respond by confessing sin. Uh, we'll respond by eating the bread and drinking the cup. And actually, the communion is is a tangible way we we eat the bread that speaks of Christ's body. That was broken on behalf of yours. He became broken so you can be made whole. That sounds silly and cliche, but it's absolutely true. He was broken so that you can be made whole. That's what we're here for. Guys, God's here. He wants to meet with you. He wants to draw near to you. All right, those of you around, just laying hands on. Why don't you guys pray right now? And uh, Chris will lead us in some worship. We'll partake of communion. We'll sing some songs. And we'll spend some time with God.